This morning we are beginning a new series as a church in the book of Acts. It's an important um, season for our church, being that as a church we are preparing to begin um, nominating men for elders of this church. It's a good time for us to consider what the church is and what the church is called to do. And there's honestly not a better book in the Bible to look at this than in Acts. And so that is why, based off of where we are in the life of our church, we are going to begin a series in the book of Acts that we will be going through for a considerable period of time. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. They are stories after stories of how God has continued to work um, after his resurrection and his ascension and even into today. This morning, we're going to start by looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And if there's a title, there indeed is a title. It is How Jesus Works. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 1. If you have a bulletin, you can follow along. The text is printed there. Hear now the reading of God's word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of God. Let me pray. Our great God, we must come to your word humbly. And here we have uh, the book of Acts, how it begins. And once again, we have to lay down maybe preconceived notions. We have to lay down what we might have think to hear from your word. So we ask, O oh Lord, that you would speak and that we, your servants, would listen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week on MSNBC, a former uh, George Bush and uh, Dick Cheney strategist named Michael Dowd made the following comment on live television. He said, I have said this before, and I'll say it again. If Jesus was alive today, he would be called a groomer. He would be called woke. He would be called socialist. <laughs> There's a lot in that comment that I'd like to comment on, but I only want to focus on one of them. And that's the comment, if Jesus were alive Today, You see, at the heart of the Christian faith is the belief that Jesus is alive today. 
This is, in fact, what we celebrated last week during Easter, that Jesus has risen from the grave. And it's the very thing the book of Acts assumes. Consider how Acts begins. O Theophilus, which is just somebody whose name is God-lover. Philo, which is love. You know, Theo, God. God-lover. Someone was named God-lover. And Luke is writing to them and says, I, in the first book, O Theophilus, the first book being Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, implying that Jesus is continuing to do and teach. Indeed, this is the framework for the entire book of Acts. It's the thesis. It's, it's how we are to understand Acts itself. Jesus is alive, and he is still working. And it begs the question, how? How does Jesus work today? Now, a lot of people have opinions on how he works today. And of course, today, I'm going to propose to you a way or the way that he does. Now, regardless of the details of how he works and flesh it out and the ways that different churches flesh out what I'm about to say, I think most Christians can agree that there are many ways the church and his people have fumbled the way that God works today, the way that the risen Lord works today. If you're like me, you are consistently tired of hearing how men and women and churches fall short of living godly lives. You are tired of healing, hearing illicit conduct by ministers of the gospel or churches falling from grace. You're tired. Surely, you say, this is not how Jesus is at work. And I would say to you, yes, this is not how Jesus works. But there's a temptation that we have as a church as we think about how Jesus works today, that somehow in knowing how Jesus works today, that we as a church are above the other churches who have fallen from graces, or above the godly people who turned out to be not so godly. No, the truth of it is we too are susceptible to not working the way of Jesus today. And for that reason, we have to, you and me, stop humble ourselves and lean into the scriptures, the truth of it, how Jesus is working today. And that's what we're going to do. The book of Acts gives us the framework for how we come to understand how Jesus works today. Indeed, it's not overly prescriptive. We're not going to get into every nook and cranny of the ways that Jesus works today. But we're just going to look at the dichotomy that this chapter gives to us. And that dichotomy is the way we think Jesus works and the way Jesus works. It's simply put, the way we think Jesus works and the way that Jesus works. This morning, I want us to look at these two realities so that we might align ourselves with the way that Jesus works and put off the way we think Jesus works. So let's do that. Let's first look at the way we think, we think that Jesus works. The disciples give us a classic example of how often we think Jesus works. Look at what the disciples say in verse six. So when they had come together, that's the disciples and Jesus, they looked at Jesus and said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? To them, Jesus' continued work meant the restoration 
of God's people to the kingdom of Israel. But Jesus responds to them in verse 7, and it makes it clear that their question is off. He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Something is clearly off in the way that they understand how Jesus is going to work from that moment on. What is their misunderstanding? What is wrong with the way they think Jesus is going to work? Now, I want to present to you not the answer to this question, but two possibilities for their misunderstanding for how Jesus is going to work. One is a much more uh, considerate of who they are and, and, and favorable to them. Let's look at what the, a favorable understanding of their question of Jesus. At best, the question that they're asking Jesus is just a theological misunderstanding. At best. You know, they just, they didn't quite understand all that was taking place. And who can, can fault them at this? Because the kingdom of Israel had, had such a precedent in the Old Testament I mean, the story of Moses, as they leave Egypt, they were heading towards a promised land where the kingdom of Israel would be established in the nation of Canaan. The kingdom of Israel had a huge and prominent reality in Israel's story, in these Jews' story, in the disciples' story. And of course, this kingdom had an eternal Davidic throne that we hear of in 2 Samuel 7. These men would know about that eternal throne, that promise to David that, yes, forever someone would be on the throne from your line. The kingdom of Israel was a part of their everyday vernacular. It's their understanding. It's their worldview. God's going to establish his kingdom with Israel. And then on top of that, After Jesus raised from the dead, we read in that 40-day time between his resurrection and ascension, we read what Jesus is talking to them about. Do you remember what he's talking about? You can see it. I believe it's verse 3. He's talking to them about the kingdom of God. Not the kingdom of Israel, but the kingdom of God. But isn't it easy, even for you and me, to assume that they're, they're one and the same? It's a simple theological misunderstanding at best. But it's clearly wrong. But I told you that's the best case scenario of these disciples. They just, you know, like they just misunderstood what Jesus was saying. The worst case scenario, and I think it perhaps is part of the reason they're asking this question, is it's coming from a place of arrogance. Consider this. These 11 disciples, and they were 11 at this time because Judas the 12th killed himself. It was their position with the resurrected Jesus in their midst to think, we're pretty hot stuff. I mean, we, we sat with Jesus the night he was betrayed, and now here the resurrected Jesus, and he's coming and he's talking to us about the kingdom of God, and he has power to overthrow the grave. What is the Roman government to this man? We are set. We're the 11 generals of this army. We are going to be in a place of great prominence. And when you understand some of the things that they talked about during Jesus' life, do you remember they are constantly arguing with one another about who is the greatest? (laughs) Like, the arrogance that we can see in these men's life is just dripping off the page. I don't think it just magically goes away in 40 days. I think they're hopeful That Jesus is going to overthrow Rome, establish a physical throne 
in Israel, and these guys are going to be the generals. I mean, they don't hold the prominent place, but they hold a very prominent place. It is a place of arrogance, one where they're trying to see, like, where are we going to shift this? Like, we, we, we finally have gotten the glory that we want in our name. It's arrogance, perhaps. Regardless, though, whether it be a small theological misunderstanding or extreme arrogance on their part, Jesus tells them, the way you're thinking is not the way that I work. We have to be mindful of the way that Jesus works, and we have to know that there is a way that Jesus works, and we have to be mindful of that. We have to know theologically the right way he works, but we also must check ourselves in our arrogance and thinking, this is all about us. That Jesus' work is about us putting us on a pedestal. Let me tell you about a story about myself that this kind of reminds me of. Uh, I take great pride in knowing maps. I've known maps my entire life. I feel like I have great sense of direction. I know for a fact this is north, this is west, this is east, this is south. I know maps very well. You might call me arrogant, I just call it, that's fact, I just know maps. And so one trip, Kimberly and I go into Montreal, Quebec. I don't know if you've ever been to Montreal, Quebec. It's like a European city in North America, beautiful. But there's a problem when you go to another country with your cell phone service. They charge a lot of money when you go international. And so, knowing maps so well, knowing that it's really expensive to use my phone, I decided you know what, I'll just study the maps. And when we get to Montreal, I know exactly where we're gonna go. I'm gonna go right to my Airbnb. I got this, I know maps, I don't need my phone. It would be really expensive. So we drive into Montreal, and everything looks familiar, all right? Cross streets, I know this map. But then something happened, a misunderstanding on my part. I swear we're on Fifth Street right here. And I look at the sign, we're on 5th Street. Our Airbnb should be right here. There's no Airbnb. And so I take a left. I think it's this way. And I end up spending my time wandering around Montreal. Now, Kimberly, being the patient wife that she is, and indeed she is patient at this point, she's helping me out. Uh, but my arrogance is getting in the way. I don't want to turn on my phone. But I finally said after... Probably 30 minutes of wandering around Montreal, completely and utterly lost. I said, all right, where we are? Where are we, GPS? Turned on the GPS. We were a quarter mile off. <laughs> we were a quarter mile west of where we needed to be. There was a misunderstanding on my part. But there was also an arrogance that was a part of that. And I was completely off. It's the same with the disciples. Whether it be a misunderstanding or an arrogance, they completely missed how Jesus is at work. If it had happened to them, it can certainly happen to us. We must, we must come to the scriptures with humility and ask of the scriptures, Jesus, how are you working? Like, maybe I can get something wrong. Maybe I don't quite understand the scriptures, so Lord, you gotta teach me your scriptures because you know, at, at, at best, we can get things wrong, can we not? At worst, 
we can arrogantly assume that Jesus works for our own glory. And sadly, I think there are many churches who have fallen into this. And so as a church, as we seek to establish ourselves and as people start knowing about our church, we are going to be tempted to make Jesus' work through this church about us and not about Jesus. And this can permeate in so many different ways. It can permeate the pulpit big time. I mean, the, the culture wants to put up on a pedestal those communicators who are most dynamic. That's dangerous. Oftentimes the pulpit is just a man who is humble, but weak and sinful. If we put people on pedestals, they're going to disappoint us. It is not about us, even if we think this is what it's about. This is not what Jesus' work is. It is not about us. It is about him. And so that leaves us, not with how we think the church should be run, not the way we think Jesus works. So the question becomes, how does Jesus work? How does Jesus work? Well, Jesus is very clear to us how he works in verse 8. Look at this. He says to them, right after he tells them, it's not for you to know, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I love the way that Jesus responds to their question. I love it. Whether it be misunderstanding, theological misunderstanding, or pure arrogance. His response to them blows it all up. And it changes the way they think. Look at this. First. Jesus says he is going to send his powerful spirit to them. It's not going to be about the resurrected Lord throwing down the government like they think it is and establishing Israel. It's about the spirit coming to them and then working through them. Not through Jesus, but through them. They're going to be the one who, who, who in his power, go out. It's not them holding on to Jesus' coat. No, it's them going out in Jesus' power through his spirit. But secondly, it's not about the establishment of the kingdom of Israel. It's the establishment of the kingdom of God. And those two are very different. The kingdom of God is much larger than the kingdom of Israel. It includes Jerusalem, which is the capital of Israel. It includes Judea, which is like the state of Israel. But it also includes Samaria, which is an area outside of Israel. And it also includes the ends of the earth. And in Jesus is saying, look, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to walk with power everywhere. And the kingdom of God, through the Spirit, is going to establish my kingdom everywhere. It's not one place. It's not coming in towards one place. It's one place going out to all places. He's turning it on its head. It's not about you. It's about the kingdom of God going throughout all the earth. And then we find what is perhaps a very intriguing uh, situation that takes place when Jesus ascends. What is going on? So you have, you have Jesus saying you're going to go to the ends of the earth. And then you have this ascension 
of Jesus and the disciples looking at, and then you have these two men who are in white who appear to them. What's going on here? If you know anything of the Old Testament scriptures, you know that one of the most prominent characters in the Old Testament is a man named Elijah. And Elijah did not die, he ascended. And Elijah had kind of like a protege. Do you remember his name? Elisha. And Elisha was standing with Elijah when he ascended. And the conversation that took place when he ascended was like something like this. Elisha, if you see me ascending, you will have a double portion of my power. And of course, Elisha sees Elijah ascending into heaven. What is happening at the ascension of Jesus when they see Jesus being taken up and there's two men appearing? Many scholars believe that it could be Moses and Elijah who are doing this, not angels. And the fact that they see Jesus, what we know is that indeed these disciples experience a double portion of the power that Jesus had through his spirit. How do we summarize, in in essence, the way that Jesus works today? Here's how. Jesus works through people like you and me by his spirit in powerful ways throughout all the earth. Jesus works through people like you and me, arrogant, ignorant people like you and me through his spirit to go to the ends of the earth to demonstrate his power that he would be glorified and not us. And this power, we must know, is a mighty power. It is a power that we can't even comprehend. Some people like to think of it as this extraordinary power. And indeed, I think there's ways, and you see it in the book of Acts, where, where there's an apostolic power where, 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 where there's things going, oh, what just happened right there? <laughs> I, don't, I don't really quite understand what's going on right there. But I ain't ever seen like, something like that before. There's extraordinary power, and then there's ordinary power. Even the ordinary power is incredible. This past week at our prayer night on Wednesday night, a group of us sat outside and we were kind of talking about this text. And John Mark brought up Peter and it kind of triggered me having a thought about the power of these disciples. And the thought went something like this. These are men that lived 2,000 years ago today. Like you, you could go back 2,000 years and these are men. Name me other men that lived 2,000 years ago. Okay, you probably don't know very many, and if you do, it's a few. Then name me some men who, by their teaching, by their, by their witnesses, could literally construct the way we think and, can, and, and establish the way that our culture is. You can't. I mean, if you looked at these men from a very humanistic standpoint, there's no doubt that the men who were witnesses and ex- the, the, the men who experienced the Holy Spirit were indeed incredibly powerful people. They shaped the way we think today. They even shaped the way that non-Christians think today. 
These are incredibly powerful people. But as Christians, we know that these men didn't just write these things. No, they wrote these things through the power of the Holy Spirit. Ordinary living, ordinary writing, going through the ordinary ways of life. And there was incredible power. What's the application for you and me? The Holy Spirit typically works through ordinary ways. And those ordinary ways are incredibly powerful. How does the Spirit work and how do we get in touch with this? For some of you in here, you might say, do I have the Holy Spirit in me? Does the power of the Holy Spirit reside in me? Let me speak to you very briefly. You might not have the Holy Spirit. You might not. And you have to wonder to yourself, how do I get it? And the answer is very simple. You get it through repentance and faith. Peter, the first sermon that's recorded in the book of Acts, does this very thing. He says to the people who are listening to the first sermon that he gives, repent and be baptized. If you want the Holy Spirit, you must repent. Repent of your sins. Turn from the ways that you have lived your life and acknowledge before God that you have lived the way that you want to live, not the way that he's called you to live. Repent. Repent of the ways that you have lived your life and turn to the one who has created you. But in doing so, recognize in your repenting that he is merciful and gracious. Repent and then believe. Would you lift up your head and receive his mercy, a mercy that comes to you through Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. To those who have repented and believed, the work of the Holy Spirit is in you. And that Holy Spirit will work powerfully in your life and wherever you go. You will be my witnesses. You will be. So if you do not have the Holy Spirit, repent and believe. But what of those of you who are Christians, who would say, I do have the Holy Spirit within me? The question that I have for you is, are you walking with the Spirit? Are you keeping in step with him? This is exactly what Paul asks of the Christians in Galatians 5. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says in Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So to the question, the question for those of you who have the Holy Spirit, who have experienced his power in unique ways, how are you walking? How do you walk? How are you being his witnesses in Little Rock and demonstrating his power? How do you get that? It's quite simple, my friends. Repent and believe. We repent of the ways that we have been in error, humbly recognizing, you know what? I got that wrong. And then we believe. We believe that his mercy and grace to us is for us. And we trust that we are indeed his witnesses here in Little Rock. And that power can go throughout all of us. Let us not doubt the work of the Spirit in our lives, Christians. 
as we encounter those who are stubborn and whose will of saying, I don't believe in God. Let us not doubt that the power of God can overcome a will who is stuck in their, themselves. Indeed, the power of the Holy Spirit can break someone's will. So do you have someone in your life who you think, there is no way I would ever see them in church? Doubt not. The Spirit of God is much more powerful than that. And he wants to use you, so keep in step with the Spirit. Repent and believe. Keep in step with the Spirit. This is how Jesus works. He works through ordinary people like you and me through the power of his spirit. And we keep in step with this spirit through repentance and faith. Jesus worked through arrogant, misunderstood people like Peter, and they changed the world. I, I, we will never know, and I get, guess Peter never knew the extent of his influence in this life. He died 2,000 years ago. What it shows me is that God gets the glory, not Peter, right? But as a people of God, who God wants to continue to work through, let us repent and believe in keeping in step with the Spirit. And this city will change. And the people we encounter will change for the glory of God. May he do that to us. Let us continue in working the works of Jesus through his spirit. Let me pray. Oh, Jesus, we ask that you would grant to us repentance and faith, that we would indeed keep in step with your spirit. Lord, we ask this not, not so that we can get more glory or that our church can get bigger or that our brand can get more famous. Absolutely, positively not. May we keep in step with the spirit for the glory of your name. Lord, you have come, you have given off all things that we, your people, would receive all that you have. May we do that for the sake of our neighbors and the glory of your name here in Little Rock. Amen.